Good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. Weren't we just here a moment ago? It seems, it seems like it. Um, wow, this is a very impressive crowd. Either that or it's a very small room. Which do you think it is? Actually, uh, this is an impressive crowd, I know, because I actually looked at the numbers. And thank you for, uh, for being here tonight. Now, I always ask this question. How many of you are here at Socrates in the City for the very first time? Would you raise your hands? Wow. Wow. Very interesting. And then I have to ask the corollary. How many of you are here for the last time, if you'd raise your hands? That's uh, a number of you. Yeah, I wish. I wish. Um, all right. If... Um, Uh, if you're here for the last time and it's something I said, so there. Um, we have, uh, we do still have seats. So if anybody is, uh, trying to usher or whatever, there, there's seats here. I don't want anyone to, to get a bad seat. That shouldn't be the case. Um, okay. Now, those of you who are here for the first time, and that struck me as quite a large number of you, um, you're not really familiar. You couldn't be familiar with, um, some of the protocol that we have at these gatherings. Uh, so I should probably explain up front that it's customary upon arrival to slip the host. That would be me, a crispy C-note. Uh, now look, if you forgot, you didn't know, no harm done. Next time you come, just make it a deuce and we'll be even. You know what I'm talking about. That's the way we roll, as it were, at Socrates in the City. Um, uh, now, I should also ask, how many of you were with us the last time we gathered, April 9th, about the Bonhoeffer thing? How many of you were here for that? Oh, quite a large number of you. Wow. Uh, well, um, that, um, April 9th, quite a date. Uh, the, um, we gathered on that day to hear the author of a sparkling, uh, shiny, minty fresh biography, uh, on Bonhoeffer, and it really was, uh, it was an amazing uh, evening on a number of levels. It was kind of insane. If you weren't there, you wouldn't know this, but we opened the proceedings with a trapeze artist. We've never done that before. Um, there was no trapeze, but the man assured me he was a trapeze uh, artist. He was only bartending that evening, but he was a trapeze artist, and we opened the evening with him. Um, but it was special. It was, uh, some of you know, the 65th anniversary of the death of Bonhoeffer in 1945. It was the official launch of my book on Bonhoeffer, the first book, major book on him in about 40 uh, years. And we may have copies available this evening. I don't know. I don't care about that kind of stuff. But we may. Uh, and if you, if you buy uh, one of those copies, you get a CD of um, the event or whatever, a, a, an audio recording. So if that can entice you uh, to buy a book... Um, some of you may have seen the Wall Street Journal reviewed it, and they hailed me as the new Tolstoy. Isn't that good? Isn't that something? Yeah, I've always wanted to be hailed as, as the new Tolstoy, and finally, uh, that, just take that right off the list now, because I got that done. Um, and the new Oscar Wilde, and uh, yeah, a whole bunch of things. But um, now, if you missed that uh, amazing event, don't cry, because this is something new, but we have a very high-quality video of it, and we have posted that online on our website. Some of you guys got the email today. We've never done that before. We've always wanted to do that, but we finally uh, got, uh, did that. We got a high-definition video uh, of the event. We will post other videos of other events, of tonight's event, I hope, if the quality uh, and sound are okay. We will also make them available for sale sort of in a higher quality because you have to compress it to put it online so that the quality is not 100%. But uh, we're going to be... Um, doing that, and uh, you can share with your friends uh, in places like Iowa, 
what Socrates in the city is. Uh, so, um, let me see. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I did mention we're going to be offering the DVDs for sale. Now, the DVDs that are for sale, they're going to be different, higher quality than the online version, and they'll feature like a number of, you know, extras, uh, such as CDs. Uh, you got to love those DVD extras, right? And one of the uh, DVDs we're working on right now, we've got, uh, we've added an animated dream sequence uh, <laughs> in which Gene Kelly dances with Francis Collins. It's really extraordinary. You can't tell that Gene Kelly is long dead um, because he dances uh, in such a lively way. But, uh, and all of, uh, all of these CDs, uh, DVDs, I should say, that you purchased, they're going to be just loaded with, uh, with extras, wacky Socrates in the City outtakes and bloopers, for example. Lots of crazy surprises in store for you. For example, tonight, shh, don't tell anybody, we've hidden a camera in the men's bathroom. That's a part of the, we've got all kinds of crazy surprises for you. So we're taking it to the next level. Uh, but all those outtakes and bloopers are in there. You remember the time John Palkinghorn's dentures flew out of his mouth? You probably, some of you were there that night, uh, and they hit that heiress, remember? <laughs> oh, how we laughed. Uh, anyway, now it's on, it's on DVD, and you can watch that at home. And relive that moment over and over and over again. Um, but don't tell Sir John, he's a little sensitive about it. Um, okay, so we're offering DVDs, and we're, uh, we've got the, the, the videos online. So that's something new. Another new thing for Socrates in the City that we're doing, we're launching Socrates in the City in Chicago uh, next week, actually. That's right. And the speaker will be... Ch Chicago? Well, the speaker will be Oz Guinness. Th thank you very much, Michael, because it, it had slipped my mind. Uh, but it will actually be Oz Guinness. I can never remember his name. Now, if you love what you hear tonight, um, you know, why not make it a twofer and fly out to the Windy City uh, for next week? And you can hear the same speech, virtually the same speech, again. He slips in and out of the British accent, you'll notice. So sometimes if you hear him multiple times, you start noticing that it's a put-on accent. But, um, but the first time, very few people can tell because he's very practiced. Um, so tonight, as you know, we have the privilege of hearing from our very dear old friend, Oz Guinness. Uh, as you know, uh, Oz was instrumental in my starting Socrates in the year 2000. Uh, the year 2000 always sounds way in the future, right? But actually, it's not. It's 10 years ago. Um, uh, Oz and I, I remember we drew up plans for Socrates in the city on the back of a cocktail uh, napkin at Sardi's. That's true. And here we are. Uh, by the way, I've given that napkin to the Smithsonian, in case anybody wants to ask about it. It's uh, right next to John Polkinghorne's dentures and the uh, heiress's tiara. Thank you very much. You've been a great audience. Um, all right, so let me try and introduce uh, Oz Guinness, if I could. I have to say up front, you know this, Oz is not much on book learning. He delivers a simple, old-timey gospel message. It ain't going to offer you much in the way of head knowledge. But it'll sure tug at the old heartstrings. And before you know it, you'll be a walking that sawdust trail to glory. Hallelujah. That, that's Oz in a nutshell. No, of course I'm joking. Uh, uh, on the contrary, one thing we can be sure is that Oz Guinness will make you think. And for that, I apologize in advance. <clears throat> uh, who wants to have to think after a hard day's work? But that's the deal with Oz. What you see is what you get. Uh, he doesn't mean anything by it. That's just his way. Um, but seriously now, okay? Oz is an author, a social critic, a senior fellow of the East-West Institute in New York. He is co-founder of the Trinity Forum and served as senior fellow from 1991 to 2004. Uh, he has directed the first seven Trinity Forum seminar curricula and is currently one of the senior faculty members of the Trinity Forum Academy. How many of you are familiar with the Trinity Forum? 
some of you, quite a few of you. It is spectacular. I think we linked to it on the Socrates website, uh, and you uh, really should, you should be aware of it. It's just one of those things you need to know about. Um, a little history. Oz Guinness is the great-great-grandson of Arthur Guinness, the Dublin brewer. Oz was born in... You see, you see, you see how it is, Oz? Right. We've got to learn these people. That's why I bring you here to New York. We've got to learn them. Um, all right. Uh, Oz was born in China during World War II. His parents were medical missionaries. Um, he was a witness to the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949. Yeah, he and his family were expelled with many other foreigners in 1951. He returned to Europe where he was educated in England, completed his undergraduate degree at the University of London and got his DPhil in the social sciences from Oriel College, Oxford. He's written and edited more than 25 books. I'm sure most of you have read at least some of them. I won't uh, list them here. Previously, he was a freelance reporter with the BBC. Uh, since coming to the U.S. in 1984, Oz has been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies and a guest scholar and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Uh, from 1986 to 89, he served as executive director of the Williamsburg Charter Foundation, a bicentennial celebration of the First Amendment. Um, as a European visitor to the U.S. Uh, and a great admirer but detached observer of American culture, he stands in the long tradition of outside voices who have contributed so much to America's ongoing discussion about the state of the Union. Uh, that's partly why he is here tonight. He's going to share with us about freedom, what it is, whether we can keep it, and so on and so forth. I assume you knew that, and that's why you're here. Uh, we, as usual, we have about uh, 35 or 40 minutes of a talk, and then we've got time for Q&A, which we always look forward to. Uh, Oz lives um, in McLean, Virginia, with his wife, Jenny, who is also here. Jenny, there she is. Uh, so if you'll welcome Oz Guinness to the podium. Thank you, Eric. Thank you all. It's a cliche, how do you follow that? But it's true when you have to follow Eric. I was so sorry I was not here at the Bonhoeffer introductory evening. Someone told me he'd started a dreadful new practice where the Socrates speakers now had to introduce themselves <laughs> in the same inimitable way he has, which I would be incapable of. Tonight's topic is deeply serious. Certainly, at the moment, this country is now. Many of you will remember the New Hampshire protesters' placard, it is time to water the tree of liberty. And as he went into the town hall meeting, he had on his hip the fully visible semi-automatic gun. Tocqueville pointed out that the New England townships are the cradle of Republican freedom. What would he have said of someone going in with that placard? Which, as you know, the full quotation is one of Thomas Jefferson's rash and dangerous remarks, which is long loved by supremacists and survivalists and was worn proudly on his T-shirt by Timothy McVeigh when 15 years ago he blew up the Oklahoma City Murrah building. What does it say of America today 
and I speak as an outsider, that you can see this bitter, polarized gridlock in so much of American public life, and certainly where we live in Washington, D.C. It was a common truism that the current president had more problems on his plate than any president in recent memory. But with all the discussion of the economy and healthcare and international standing and immigration coming up, education and many other issues, I'm personally surprised that more people don't focus on what I think is one of the most deep and certainly the most surprising of all the crises, which is the crisis of freedom. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. St. Augustine was very famous for saying, you can define a people by what they love supremely and hold in common. And a people or a nation or a country is either better or worse according to what it loves supremely. And equally, its state is healthy or unhealthy depending on the condition of that which they love supremely. And beyond any question, the deepest energizing principle of America is freedom. The glory of America, the strength of America. But I want to raise the question the framers raised, can freedom last forever? You may know the famous story of a time in the 1840s when a Massachusetts scholar who was very young in his early 20s was going around all the veterans of the American Revolution. And he met an old gentleman called Captain Levi Preston, who was 70 years older than he was, 91. Very bowed. And the young man asked him, why did you go out to fight? Because he'd been at both Lexington and Concord. And the old boy raised himself slowly to his full height, very surprised that anyone should ask such an obvious question. And the student said again, well, did you go out to fight oppression? We weren't oppressed, he said. We felt we were as free as anyone on earth. Well, what about the stamp tax? Never saw it, he said. How about the tea tax? Never drank a drop of it, he said. The boys threw it in the harbor before I got there. <laughs> well, surely you read the great books on freedom, Sidney and Harrington, Locke, Burke. Never heard of any of them, he said. All we had was the Bible and Isaac Watts' hymn book and some old almanac. And as it went on like this, the reporter was getting a little perplexed. And he said, well, again, why did you go out to fight? And the old boy gave this immortal answer. We had always been free, and we intended to be free always. And the redcoats were in our way. Now, if you read the framers, that beyond any question is politically and theoretically, philosophically, the most daring thing the framers did to create a free republic that they dared believe could remain free forever. And that's the issue before us tonight. Can freedom last forever? What did the framers think and why did they think it could? And where are we today, 230 odd years later, in tackling practically that great issue? Let me lay it out to you, the number of steps in the thinking, some of which will be very obvious to many of you, some of which maybe you haven't thought through, but think through with me, 
and then let in our discussion say, well, where is America today in terms of the answer to that question? Can freedom last forever? The framers set it up a certain way. Modern America has gone a very different way. Are we more realistic than them? Are they more realistic than us? What has to be done now? And what do the other crises that we see in our front pages and so on, what do they have to say to these issues? Step one, and very obviously, understand the framers' accomplishments in tackling this issue. As you know, the framers were very scornful of democracy. They were not proud pro-democrats like many modern Americans. They built a republic which was ordered in a certain way and they were self-conscious how they designed it in terms of freedom. Very obviously, there were three tasks underlying it. So obvious they hardly need saying. Except where we are today, we have often forgotten the important one. The first task is the obvious one, winning freedom. And that's 1776, the revolution. They did it, but so did the Russians. So did the French. So did the Chinese. There have been many successful revolutions in the world. The second task was ordering freedom. The Russians didn't do it. The French didn't do it. The Chinese didn't do it. Their revolutions succeeded but were never ordered and spiraled down to a demonic disorder that was more tyrannical than the regimes they replaced. But the framers ordered it. If winning freedom in one word is the revolution, ordering freedom in one word is the constitution. A political framework ordering freedom. But they were equally clear in the third task, which you hardly hear any speaking about today, which is sustaining freedom. Sometimes Franklin is quoted as he came out of the Constitutional Convention and Mrs. Powell met him and said, what did you achieve? Because, of course, it was secret. A republic, madam. And you know the words that followed? If you can keep it. Now, of course, for many after that, that was the key notion. So Abraham Lincoln is a young man, only a month or two into Springfield. When he's asked to address the Young Men's Association, he takes the topic, the perpetuation of our institutions. How are we doing today, 50 years on from the revolution, sustaining freedom? And many others since, but not in the current generation. And you can see a remarkable irony because the word sustainable is now a vogue word. Business, the environment, in all sorts of areas. Sustainable, this, that, and the other. But nobody talks about what the framers talked about. Sustainable freedom. On to the second step. Appreciate the framers' concerns as they built the republic and tried to build in against its eventual loss of freedom. The framers rightly are revolutionary. But what many forget is they were also rooted. They knew their history. And they tried to use history to defy history. And they ransacked the classics to see why regimes rose and fell and freedom never lasted. Now, I'm following, actually, the sort of approach that they used, which Montesquieu used and others used, which today is very unpopular in political science, which is the old approach of regime analysis. 
that the principle by which a nation rises, unless it's understood and well cultivated, becomes the pathology by which it eventually declines. And seeing that, the framers were very aware why so many of the classical orders collapsed. The first reason they didn't bother about, it was simply external. In other words, any nation might find itself with an external enemy that is greater, more powerful than itself, and it's in trouble if it's not armed. But, of course, they came from a small protected island, most of them, found themselves living on a large protected continent with two great oceans as its natural buffer, and the idea of external menace was not at the front of their thinking. And again, you can see in the 1830s, Lincoln, in that same speech, mocking the idea that some transatlantic Bonaparte could put his feet down in the cornfields of Ohio. It was unthinkable. Of course, we know well, and certainly in New York, that was then. In a day of intercontinental ballistic missiles and the Internet, things like terrorism are terribly uh, possible. The second and third menaces, though, they took much more seriously. And modern Americans are very different at this point in their understanding. The second menace was what Polybius, the Greek historian, calls the corruption of customs. What did he mean? Polybius surveyed all the different types of political orders you can have. And then he said what's fundamental and decisive to each of them is their constitution. And when Americans read or hear that, they go to sleep. You've got a fine constitution. What more needs to be said? Polybius didn't stop there. He said the constitution, the fundamental laws, rest in a bedding of cultural customs and mores and habits. And if there's a corruption of customs, there will eventually be a subversion of the constitution. And although the same words are there, the same reality will have gone. In other words, in all the classical understanding, both Greek and Roman, the greatest danger for a country is at its greatest power and its greatest prosperity, not when it's weak. The third menace is one the framers wrote a lot about, and that in one word is simply time. Time. The passing of time. Christians and Jews would add the presence of sin and the passing of time. But for that reason, nothing lasts forever. And you can see the framers wrestle with this, how you could set up something that really resisted the ravages of time. And again, Lincoln, very unusual for a 28-year-old. In his speech, he talks about the silent artilleries of time, undoing what all the foes of the revolution could not undo. They took seriously the passing of time and the fact that nothing stays the same forever. Let me add a third step that they didn't, but I would add in the light of a wider view of history which we have today. Face up to the grand paradox of freedom. Thomas Jefferson called America an empire of liberty. And people have quickly added to that an empire of liberty with great contradictions, such as the treatment of the African Americans, such as the treatment of the Native Americans, such as the treatment of women. 
But far beyond those sort of contradictions, which are true, there is, if you look at the whole of history, a grand paradox of freedom itself, which is this. The greatest enemy to freedom is always freedom. If you examine the state of freedom in the world, there's a kind of multidimensional conundrum. At one level, rather simply, there's a historical dimension. No free society has ever lasted forever. In fact, if you look at freedom-loving societies and look at the whole, say, history of civilizations and put it into a one-hour clock, freedom-loving societies only come on the map in the last minute or two before midnight. They are rare and fleeting. But a second dimension is deeper, and that's political. As many of the framers knew, people like Montesquieu had written that freedom is always kept alive by structures and by spirits. Structures such as the constitution of a country, but the spirit is a matter of the citizenry. And you can have freedom-protecting structures and lose it if you don't have the spirit of the citizens that's also cultivating freedom. As Montesquieu and the framers pointed out, that didn't really apply to the Greeks. Because with the Greeks, they were, as Madison put it, a direct democracy. They did everything in person. There was no Athens. There were just Athenians. Athenians in the assembly. Athenians in their naval battles. Athenians building the Acropolis, or whatever. There was no great gap between society and the state. But of course, with modern republics, there's a huge gap between society and the state. And you can see now that gap is bigger than ever, with many people hating their government, and so on. And yet, it's the government by the consent of the governed. So you can see you can lose freedom one of two ways, they would have said, either undermining the structures that keep freedom alive or by undermining the spirit or what Tocqueville later calls the habits of the heart. But there's a deeper dimension still of this paradox of freedom, and that's the moral and the spiritual. And here again, you get very unlikely people arguing this point. Freedom requires order and therefore restraint. But the only restraint appropriate to free people is self-restraint. But it's precisely self-restraint that is undermined when freedom flourishes. So freedom undermines itself. And you can see as you put those things together... This great paradox of freedom, that freedom has never lasted, and the fundamental menace to freedom is freedom itself. And so freedom spirals down in a number of ways. It spirals down and runs right and becomes permissiveness and license. Or freedom can be so wonderful that freedom-loving people love their security and so make themselves secure that they undermine their freedom. Or freedom-loving people so glory in their freedom that all they do is justified in the name of freedom. 
even things which profoundly contradict freedom. And people have said you've seen one of each of those three in the United States and its foreign policy in the last 10 years or so. Step four, and back to the framers. Re-explore their understanding of the antidotes to the decline of freedom. If you ask modern Americans what's the framers' answer, almost everyone would say the Constitution. That is not the framers' full answer. The Constitution is incredibly important, but historians point out this notion of the Constitution as the bulwark of human freedom actually arose to its apogee in the 1920s. At a precise time when law was creeping into more and more of society, and what Tocqueville called the habits of the heart was no longer trusted in. Wall Street, my word is my bond, and so on. Today, regulations. But most people would say the Constitution, but not for the framers. Their full answer is not one that they gave a name to. Tocqueville calls it, famously, the habits of the heart, to balance the Constitution. My own word for it is the golden triangle of freedom. Because if you look at the framers, and I found no exceptions from the most conservative to the more somewhat liberal, they all believed each of these things that were the legs of the triangle. The first leg that freedom required virtue. The second leg that virtue required faith of some sort. And the third leg that faith of any sort required freedom. And like the recycling triangle, it goes round and round and round and round. Freedom requires virtue, which requires faith, which requires freedom, which requires virtue, ad infinitum. I call it the golden triangle of freedom, but there's not a single one of the framers in which you can't see that very, very clearly. Washington's farewell address and many, many points, they make this so clear. And yet today, that's effectively been abandoned. Step four would be to explore the changes since the framers that have made this unthinkable. And I'll just mention three things over the course of the last 200 years. The first, and I put this in for a reason, would be the steady privatization of religion. Now many people today, particularly those who take their faith seriously, blame a lot of the current problems on strict separationists or secularists or whatever. But in fact, much of the problem started long before any of these people were on the political scene at all. And you can see in American history since the framers that faith is no longer what it used to be and they counted on it to do the job it needed to do. In other words, an integrative faith which touched the whole of life so it could really make a difference in public affairs as well as private affairs. And that privatization goes back to the mid-19th century with the rise of industrialism. In the mid-20th century, a new factor came in, which in one word is often described as proceduralism, usually connected with John Rawls, the professor of political science at Harvard. But a very simple idea that faith and virtue and character have no place in the public square. The public square is a neutral arena of competing self-interests 
So law and economics and technology, all those things are fair game in the public square, but not faith, not character, not virtue. You had an expression of that, say, just before the Clinton impeachment, when a whole number of the American intellectuals wrote a letter to the New York Times arguing that the president's character didn't matter. What matters was the president's competence, not his character. Now, if you read, say, John Adams, his words describing the people's right to know the character of their leaders, he uses words like inalienable, indefeasible, and a whole string of incredible adjectives which are today only used about human rights. But for John Adams, they were fundamental to a people's right to know character because the character of a leader was on the one hand the compass that gave him bearings when nothing else hemmed him in with the levels of power he was at. And on the other hand gave a bridge between the leader and the follower so if they knew his character they could trust him knowing they may not know the ins and the outs of the decisions but they knew him and the reliability of his integrity. But today that's gone. And you can see that after the 1940s Notions like strict separation of church and state have only reinforced that proceduralism which has flowed out of the John Rawls view of life. The third factor changing things drastically since the framers is the more recent one, postmodernism. The loose constellation of ideas that you know well, that there's no such thing as truth. What we call truth is really power, the will to power. So you can see the interpretation of the founding fathers, not just of their blemishes such as attitudes to race, but completely recast in terms of what were their agendas as white tidewater plantation-owning slave owners and so on, and therefore a complete dismissal of all that they said. Where are we now? A next step would be to identify the contemporary menaces to what the framers thought was necessary to sustaining freedom. I'll just mention three here. One would be a very significant alienation of leaders. It's often pointed out that no great nation, no great civilization endures if a significant number of its leaders are against the ideas which made it whatever it was in terms of its greatness. Now, this is only a significant number, thank God, but you can see over the last 25 years how many, frankly, no longer believe in the founders and in their vision of Republican freedom. A second menace that's contemporary is the breakdown in transmission that the framers understood had to go on in every generation. If you think of it, America requires an ongoing transmission in two ways in every generation. On the one hand, there has to be a passing on of the wisdom and the first things of being American from one generation to the next, and we call that public education. On the other hand, there has to be a teaching of the newcomers to the country what it is that makes this country American, what are the first things of being an American. And we call that civic education for those who come in as immigrants. And you can see that both things, public education and bringing in immigrants, 
America in the last 50 years has failed dismally, and there is almost no civic education. And as historians say now, it's quite easy, relatively, to become an American, but increasingly difficult in certain circles to know what it is to be American. And that obviously spells disaster at some point in the future. A pluribus unum, the great motto and great achievement of this country, no longer working. But there's a third menace, which to use Polybius's term, is a corruption of customs today. And I'll just mention maybe the most obvious thing when it comes to freedom. Any of you got into the discussion of freedom, it's always been viewed in two terms, negative and positive. Freedom is freedom from everything that oppresses and constricts. Freedom from. But that's only negative freedom, preliminary freedom. The other half of freedom is freedom for. Freedom to be. That is the higher freedom, obedience to the unenforceable. But you can see now in both conservative circles and certainly in liberal circles, the only freedom rampant in America is negative freedom. The government's interference with my body or getting the government off my back or whatever it is. You can see that freedom in America today is all negative and not positive. And as soon as any positive vision of freedom comes in, it immediately a huge controversy. Which means you have a, a freedom that is different and deficient, and by the framers' understanding, a corruption of customs. The last step I put before you, and this too needs to be thought through in much greater depth, address the problems that could restore freedom and genuinely work towards an American renewal. And let me open up here just three areas you need to think through in much greater depth. The first I've referred to, which is liberal education. Now, I deliberately use the word liberal there, although the L word is a dirty word in many circles because it was for the framers an honorable word. Why? It was understood always in history that in a free society, everybody is born free, but not everybody is worthy of freedom. Not everybody is equal to keeping freedom going. And so to fill that gap, you needed an education for liberty. And that was called, of course, liberal education, because the word liberal once meant free and generous. Now, we can call it civic education if we like, but there's no question, unless civic education is restored profoundly to America, America will inevitably decline. The second thing I don't need to refer to in any depth because that's what I spoke on last time and have written on and spoken on in many circles, the restoration and rebuilding of a civil public square. But let me just say a word or two more about the third thing, which is the reordering of the spheres of society. And this particular discussion hasn't come widely in American discussion, but I think needs to more. There's an understanding that in the industrial world, one of the influences of industrialization is what's called differentiation. All sorts of hugely different spheres were thrown up with their own 
different ways of thinking, their own different ways of operating, and so on. So you have the economy, you have politics, you have the military, you have the media and education, you have religion, and so on. But you can see, as this has been discussed in a deeper level, there's always a danger when these fears get out of line with all the others. And any of the spheres is either absolutized and sort of colonizes all the others, or its central purpose is abandoned just in the name of individual freedom. And when that happens, you get something rather dangerous. Conservatives naturally say that politics today is colonizing many other spheres of life, which it shouldn't. Many commentators around the world say economics is colonizing many spheres of life. And in our world, we have, say, human trafficking and even human cells now for buying and selling. But you can see that in America, some of the great spheres of American life are profoundly disordered. Now, there's no national established religion or anything like that to curb them in. And probably in this situation, they will only be brought back into an ordered arrangement by people with a deep sense of certainly Christian calling, but with a profound sense of what all the different spheres of the Republic were made to be. Someone said when they heard I was doing this, you're not going to just stand up there and tell us how America's going down the tube. I'm not. For a simple reason, I am actually hopeful. And I want to finish by raising the question, is it too late? Or is there a chance, a genuine chance, for constructive renewal? You may know the later famous speech of Lincoln in his campaign when he was in Wisconsin, 1859. And he told the story of the Eastern sage who sent out his wise men to find a single truth that was true in all times and in all places. And you remember the answer they brought back. This too shall pass away. But Lincoln quoted that and he said, and yet we hope that this is not quite true about America. That through the cultivation of our land, he said, and more importantly, the cultivation of our spirits, morally and intellectually, while the earth endures, this country may not pass away. Now, can we do better than just hope? In fact, I've always been fascinated with the fact the framers had an extraordinary sense of the parallels between themselves and Jews and Puritans before them. And the third of their understanding of the parables gives us, I think, a strong sense of confidence as we tackle the problems of today. The first and obvious parable parallel was that what for the Jews was exodus for the Puritans was conversion and for the revolutionaries was revolution in other words that liberating formative experience which freed a people the second parallel is equally obvious if you think about it what for the Jews was covenant for the Puritans was also covenant because they used the same word, for the American founders in a secular nationalistic way was constitution, 
because you know that the Constitution is a secularized national form of the Puritan notion of covenant which came from the Jews. But it's the third parallel that's always fascinated me. What the Jews called return and the Puritans called revival, the framers also believed in, in a national secular sense. George Mason, who was more conservative, used to speak of a need for a frequent recurrence to fundamental first principles. Unless you kept going back, you're in trouble. Thomas Jefferson, who was much more towards the liberal side, he, as you know well, spoke of a revolution every 20 years. Why? Every generation is a new people. And unless every generation buys in, goes back, the day will come when people forget, grow complacent, and it won't go on. There's a stunning fact behind the Jewish and Christian faiths. People say you can't possibly turn the clock back. You can. In fact, the two greatest movements of ideas in Western history were both a turning back of the clock, the Renaissance and the Reformation. And the fact is that both the Jewish and the Christian faiths go forward best by going back first. And going back is not reactionary. It gives an extraordinary new impulse for going forward. And that, I think, is possible in a national and a more secular sense for this country. And the way forward is certainly to learn from the mistakes that the framers made, and they made them. But on many, many issues, what they gave was probably, as it's been said, the most nearly perfect solution the world's ever seen. And I personally believe there's no current problem that couldn't be answered well by going back to America's first principles. But will there be leaders? Will there be a vision of such an American return that would be a profound way forward? That I don't know. And I'll just finish with a quotation from Tocqueville. Tocqueville, as you know, was a great admirer of America. But he wrote democracy in America not for Americans, but for Frenchmen. And he was disappointed that his French countrymen didn't pick it up and understand it. So he was a disappointed lover of the French Revolution and a passionate admirer of the American Revolution. But towards the end of his life, saddened by all he saw in France, excited by what he saw across here, he wrote this very interesting little remark. With a revolution, as with a novel, the hard part to invent is the ending. Your founders wrote a brilliant first chapter. No nation in history has ever had so many great men all at the same time. Greece had its Pericles. When I was a boy, we had Winston Churchill. But your founding generation together has never been paralleled by any nation. They wrote a brilliant first chapter. And the story of America has been many stirring chapters in between. But the current generation takes up the torch at a time when 
unless some of these things are addressed successfully, America will inevitably decline. And the question is whether this next generation will address those questions, including the question of sustainable freedom, to ensure we come closer to the framers' dream that you could build a free society that had a hope of enduring, perhaps not forever, but certainly a whole lot longer. Over to you for our question time. Of course, now have time uh, for Q&A. And so if you're interested in asking a question, I would ask you to make your way to the microphone. We have very strict rules here. Um, we ask you to keep your question, if you don't mind, keep your question in the form of a question. Yes, it's funny, very funny. And yet, every time, you'll notice that some people will break that rule. Um, so please um, do uh, keep your question in the form of a question. And please keep your question brief, because there are always plenty of people who have questions to ask, and we want to get to all those people. So um, thank you, Oz. And who will be the first questioner? I believe Lauren Green. Come up, come up to the mic. Lauren? They pushed I know you're top. shy, but I go ahead. I was going to do this third question here. But I was wondering what you thought of, you saw the article in USA Today, I, it was yesterday that said 72% of the millennials, the generation born, they were between 18 and 30, they say they are more spiritual than the religious. They don't pray as much, they don't read scripture. So what does that tell you about this generation and what our hopes are for the future? Well, I said very briefly that the weakening of religion in America is a very long process. What's remarkable in many ways is that the numbers have held so high for so long. So while Europe has been very secular, say in Sweden, 3% go to church, but where the Swedes have settled here, Minnesota, above 70%. The 40% of American average has held for a long, long, long time. But many of us, I mean, I wrote a book called The Gravedigger File, which has just come out again. Many of us have believed that American religion, for a whole lot of reasons, is rather like a house eaten by white ants. It was ready to crumble and fall. And people haven't listened. They've just rested complacently on these high numbers and so on. And we're beginning to see it all sorts of places. That was just a tiny sampling you saw in USA Today yesterday. You're beginning to see in all sorts of areas it's collapsing because it was weak and so on. And I can expect we'll see a lot more than we have today. That was invigorating, Oz. And troubling, because when you look at the doctrine of American exceptionalism, if you want to call it a doctrine, can you address from the point of view of a British sociologist what role American exceptionalism plays in the way we see ourselves as having a, perhaps a divine mandate or mission, and how you see that in light of other ideas about freedom and a constitution around that that includes religious faith, specifically Christian. And so in the, in the, under the rubric of American exceptionalism, what role does Christianity specifically play and what must be, we recapture as a people if that will inspire mm -hmm. the virtuous component of what you described mm -hmm. as a, a, an essential element of freedom? Mm -hmm. 
You've raised two components there. One's exceptionalism and one's the whole discussion of the sacred nation manifest destiny. And they overlap, but they're different. Take exceptionalism. It's not because I'm a social scientist. Just take historians. Neil Ferguson, for instance, points out that of 74 great empires, every one of them has claimed to be exceptional in its time. In other words, the claim to be exceptional is unexceptional. <laughs> and when that empire loses its power, people look at things that are more accidents of history than anything at the very heart of what made the empire so great. So I would look very carefully at that notion of American exceptionalism because, frankly, it puts many Americans to sleep. We're exceptional and so on. Whereas the issues today are so urgent, no one dare go to sleep. The sacred nation manifest destiny is somewhat different. That came up in the 1840s, I think it was, John O'Sullivan in a Democratic magazine. Christians should have challenged that then. The Puritans taught that every nation had a calling under God. That was then nationalized, secularized, and particularized by manifest destiny. America had a manifest destiny. Who knows about anyone else? But even if you take it seriously, you get to something very close to Thomas Jefferson is more sober. What did he say? I tremble. Anyone finish his sentence? I tremble for my country when I remember that God is just. In other words, if there is a calling under God, that means accountability. And that means judgment for those who don't live up to their calling. And that's a very sober thing. Now, to go on, though, I think with the present state of American problems, with many Christians tempted to use their Christian faith as a way of bolstering a culture under stress, it's a very dangerous moment for the church. We know what happened. South Africa was an extreme case. Lesser one was Northern Ireland. But when the Christian faith is used to bolster cultures under stress that people fear are going, never works for the culture, and it's a disaster for the faith. And this is a moment for followers of Jesus to be clear that they follow Jesus first and not left or right or center. In other words, we're fully engaged politically, but we're never equated to any party ideology without a remainder. We are Christ first. And this is, a, yeah. I think, a very important moment to say that because the confusion over that is tarnishing the faith terribly. And let me put part of why I take this so seriously as a European. Europe is the most secular continent in the world. There are many reasons for it. The major reason is that the European secularity is a reaction to corrupt state churches in the past. The French example supremely. America never had that. The genius of the First Amendment. Faith is voluntary. There's nothing established. And so there's a congeniality and hospitality to faith that flourished right up till the Eisenhower era. But then with the rise of the culture warring in the early 60s, the rise of the Christian right, and then the other side, you can see that the culture wars have changed things. And there's a steadily mounting American equivalent of that vehement European repudiation of religion. And it's climaxed in the new atheists. And often they have in their sight not just the ugliness, say, of Islam around the world. They have in their sights, 
what they call the American fascists, the American Ayatollahs, and their descriptions are extreme. But the Christian right has brought down on its own head many of these fears, and that to me is disastrous for the culture and disastrous for the church. The founders, you take the Golden Triangle seriously, that depends on a respect for people's faith of all sorts, free to enter and engage public life, and so on. That's gone. And in the culture-warring mood of today, it's the founder's system that's being undermined. Now, also, as a follower of Jesus, my ability to speak credibly, intelligently in public life, immediately you're confused with that or whatever. And you can see this is a moment we've got to clarify. Are we followers of Jesus first and foremost, or are we whatever? Hi. Um, I understand your frustration with the world liberal, and I'd say blaming the French because... No, I, I didn't say uh, I was, I no, didn't say I was frustrated. Well, well, I, I think many, I, many I, people are. Uh, because Libra would be free, and that's uh, somehow the subject of our evening. Um, so um, I'd rather use the word classical liberal to go the first idea conceptual that freedom was involved. Uh, but I want to mention something that confused me and somehow I had made up my mind. In 1970, I was doing a program from Munich for Radio Free Europe, broadcasting to Romania and trying to explain them some ideas coming from the free world at the time. I just was six months that I have left Romania, escape. Uh, and I look in the Marxist dictionary and the definition of freedom, strange enough, I didn't think it was the word freedom would exist, but the definition of freedom was understanding the necessity. Uh, now, I don't want to paraphrase a, um, a famous uh, Supreme Court judge saying that uh, I, uh, I know freedom when I see it, you know, no offense. Uh, but. Uh, Sometimes it gets a little confused, uh, you know, in getting, uh, because so many people claim to know the key and they have the hold on freedom, including liberals. Mm -hmm. That sometimes, you know, it's like the old Solomon King that listened to a story that he say, well, you're right, and then listen to another story. He said, well, you're right, and a helper will pull him on the side and say, you can't, both cannot be right at the same time. And he say, you know what, you're right too. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, Patricia, you probably know that Abraham Lincoln called the Civil War a freedom war because the two sides were defining freedom drastically differently. For the South, freedom from. For the North, freedom for. Human dignity, etc. And liberals who today, and I'm using the dirty word now, Liberals who today defend only negative freedom forget that all the great reform movements in history were fought in the name of positive freedom, too. But you get down to the importance to be clear about freedom. There is an important side that's negative. So you free a person from everything that constricts and constrain them. But the positive side is so important that Lord Acton put it like this. Freedom is not the permission to do what you like. It's the power to do what you ought. Or as the famous line came more later, freedom is obedience to the unenforceable. Understanding the necessity. Well, understanding the necessity in a world of chemical determinism and so on, 
you know, can undermine freedom. But I know what that person meant. In other words, doing what you should, but not doing what you must because you're coerced or because you're chemically determined or whatever. In other words, freedom today is over against a scientist determinism as well as some of the crazier ideas of negative freedom. But freedom is a, a subtle concept. Now, the framers didn't put much source on what's called internal freedom. Whereas the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and also other faiths like Buddhism do, the deepest bondages are not external. They're internal. And that's why the way of Jesus is much more radical even than what we've been talking about. If you, if you follow me in his truth, he says, you will have a truth that leads to freedom. And you can see that Freedom requires truth. That's your obedience to necessity. But the word necessity can be dangerous today. I'm personally not skeptical of the word liberal. It's, it's a wonderful word, John Mills style. But you're right, that's classical liberalism. Yes? In order to get to everybody, we will have to keep the questions significantly briefer. <laughs> uh, sorry. First of all, kudos to Eric. Bonhoeffer reads like a fast-paced yeah. novel. Thank you, Eric. Any particular fast-paced novel? <laughs> the best. Thank you. Uh, okay. Uh, Renaissance, Reformation, liberal elite, teabaggers. Where do you, s I mean, you say it's time for it. Why is it time, why is it time for something of, like that today, and how does it happen? Sorry, time for what you're talking about now? Renaissance, Reformation. Oh, I'm not saying time for the Renaissance. I think much of the Renaissance was a disaster. But I'm just saying it was a movement of ideas that went back and went forward through going back. That's all I'm saying. So many of our modern ideas of, say, unrestricted freedom, what's often called the soft nihilism, you have a freedom today that wants to be authentic to itself, which means you have nothing, tradition, customs, moral standards, nothing higher than me. And then I am free and authentically myself. Well, Nietzsche would just simply call that nihilism. Mercifully, it's a soft nihilism in America. It's not a fascist type of nihilism, but it's nihilism nevertheless. Now, the beginnings of some of that go back to Pico della de Mirandola and people like that in the Renaissance. I'm not supporting the Renaissance. Magnificent explosion of arts and all sorts of things, but some of its ideas of freedom uh, were profoundly dangerous and we're re reaping them today. I would be much closer with all its faults to the Reformation. It's attempt in that case to go back to Jesus and the scriptures and see a reflowering of some of that again after the accretions of centuries had uh, come over that and lost it. So I'm not giving a blanket endorsement of the Renaissance. Why do we need it today? I don't know any discussion of America that isn't profoundly sobered by the issues that we face. Because many of these issues, not just a crisis, they're issues that trail off and back to things that are fundamental to the founding of the Republic. Get them right, and you've got a chance of enduring. Fail to get them right, and much of the mess could deepen in certain areas. And so I don't, I, I don't anyone who thinks this is, you know, you can look at individual areas, uh, article in the New York Times recently on that, you can look at individual areas and say the economy will be booming again. I have no quarrel with that. But if you look at the constellation of issues together, America's international standing, immigration, the state of education, etc., 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 many of these are very profound, and they need to be settled again 
or America will be in trouble. Yes, you started off by talking about this deep divide that we see in America, and uh, you also mentioned the, uh, the deep divide that we saw in France um, about 100 years ago. Uh, um, and I just finished reading the Brown, Frederick Brown's book, uh, The Soul of France on uh, Culture Wars in the Age of Dreyfus. And the profound refusal of both sides in France to accept the legitimacy of each, each other seems to me frighteningly similar to what we're facing today. Um, do you have any lessons from that uh, period in French history that we can apply to uh, No, I, I too am so good. I put it slightly differently. Seymour Martin Lipset and many others referred to America as the world's first new nation, by which he meant that America in the 18th century consciously, deliberately, carefully tackled a whole slate of problems that are problems of the modern world, things like, say, migration. But when he called it that, or the framers called it the Novus Ordo Seclorum, the new order of the ages, the Europeans, they weren't interested. They just weren't interested. Why? They weren't facing the problems. You know, even as late as when I was a boy, our schools had extraordinary homogeneity. We had one Indian boy son of a very wealthy Indian industrialist. Now you go to British schools, they're as diverse as New York or Los Angeles. In other words, in one generation, this incredible change of diversity, immigration. Now, you look at Europe. There's no melting pot model. There's no First Amendment. They didn't need it. But now suddenly they do. So what do they do? Well, the French fell back on what their default position is, a strict laïcité. Strict separation. So even last week, Sarkozy banned headscarves in public. And that's the way the French deal with it. And the Turks followed the French, and the communists followed the French too. And that's their way. But far from just and far from settling the issue. My own country, England, and say the Dutch, I mean, we were all tolerant. Broadly tolerant. And we brought lots of people in over the years, the refugees and so on. So when they all started to come in, all England's tolerant. And what's the reigning philosophy of tolerance? Multiculturalism. Bring them in, let them do their thing, let them have their communities, you name it. And it bred bombers in Bradford, and it bred murderers in Amsterdam, Theo van Gogh. And suddenly the English and Dutch went, whoops, this is not quite what we meant by tolerant multiculturalism. But you can see they didn't have the American model and the American First Amendment and so on. Now, I get to the point. The tragedy is many people around the world, when they're waking up to how America for 200 years has pretty well tackled many of these problems, they look at America today, it's a mess. People are fighting over the most absurd things. I was reading in one of the European papers, you know, this is not what they're fighting over. They're fighting over things like crosses in Los Angeles, crest, or... You know, all these silly things, which, if there was civility, wouldn't be an issue, wouldn't have to go to the law courts every five minutes. But the European paper I was saying, look at, um, say, the hangings in effigy of the president. In Obama's first year, he was hanged in effigy more times on American campuses than all around the rest of the world put together. And you look at this and you say, is this the model for the world, the city on a hill, the school for the world. 
No, there's something wrong. But my sense of sorrow is at such a time when America would be relevant to the entire world if she lived up to what the founding fathers gave in almost all their cases. That, that to me is the sadness, as well as looking back to the German culture wars or the French culture wars and so on. Thank you. Let me uh, preface my question by saying I voted for Barack Obama, and you'll see why I say that in a second. And I agree with just about everything you said about transmission, renewal, what a real liberal education is. In New York, most schools don't have an American flag, don't say the Pledge of Allegiance, don't sing the Star Spangled Banner. Now, I remember the 60s, for better or worse, mm-hmm. and I remember people wearing t-shirts and buttons that said political power comes out of the barrel of a gun where is Lee Harvey Oswald when we really need him etc. So I'm just curious why did you mention Timothy McVeigh in your opening Timothy McVeigh never held a fundraiser for George Bush which someone else did who also planted bombs and is scot-free today you know if the issue is this divide in the U.S. It's both sides oh, absolutely. responsible for it. Absolutely both sides. I'm not accusing one side or the other. Although, when you look at both sides, I would major, and I'll say why, on the wrongs of Christians going along with that. So I, as a follower of Jesus, am outraged when I get the email, say, on why Obama says he's a Muslim. And you know what they've done is a scissors and paste editing job, cutting out key parts of his speeches to make him say what he never said. That, by biblical standards, is false witness. Or you have Christians with bumper stickers, you know, pray Psalm 109 verse 8 or whatever it is, which is basically praying for his end, and so on. Or the email going round about Obama as the Antichrist. Now, I remember when they went round about Kissinger as the Antichrist. But when Christians indulge in that sort of stuff, it is vile. And they are not following the way of Jesus. The head of the teacher union asked the members to pray for the death of the governor who's going to cut $750 from their budget. Well, you see what I'm saying? It's, it, it's, not, it, it's know, certainly it's on not both one side sides, of the, uh, but it absolutely. seems like, and I don't subscribe to that. I, I really don't subscribe mm-hmm. to that. But I, I've been in seminars where they discuss 9-11 and Muslim students stand up inevitably and say, why do you talk about Muslim terrorism? How about Timothy McVeigh? Mm -hmm. And Timothy McVeigh was the great exception. And after he blew up the building in Oklahoma City, the New York Times for like two weeks ran articles on different state militias about these Mm middle-aged guys running around in the woods with guns, etc., waiting for the black helicopters. Well, the ironic thing was Timothy McVeigh didn't belong to a militia. And if he, if he did, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Maybe if he wasn't such a loner and he told someone mm-hmm. or more people what he planned, someone would say, you know, I'm insane, but not that insane, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, let me absolutely be clear. I'm not picking sides. I'm not trying to assess which side is worth. Both extremes are ugly. But in a way, it's a time to say a pox on both your houses. Some of these national problems are so urgent, people have got to knock their heads together and come and do something about it. Now, I mentioned Tim Thingvey because I was at uh, the memorial the day before yesterday. 
they had the 15th anniversary, and just as Eric kindly invited me to speak on evil after 9-11 here at one of the first Socrates. They invited me to Oklahoma City to speak at the university there on facing up to the challenge of evil, you know, as part of the 15th anniversary commemoration. So that's why I mentioned him. But both sides, and wherever it's done like that. But my secondary concern is Christian support of that sort of extremism. And that is a denial of the way of Jesus, who called his followers, Eric wrote on Wilberforce. Wilberforce fought slavery, and he was outspoken against the evil of it, passionate. But his treatment of his enemies was always loving. And they mugged him, twice physically beat him up. He was the most vilified man in the entire world, and he still loved the people who opposed him. And, of course, he was trying to follow the way of Jesus. And I think this is a time for Christians to show that they follow the way of Jesus. They don't just go with the flow of the ugliness of the extremism, whichever side it's on. Thank you.